there are some cultural, spiritual, and even physical benefits to fasting that is well documented. And if it's well thought out and we're taking care of ourselves before and after, we can we can make that work. Um, that's not a big deal in terms of cycle health typically. But when we're doing something day in and day out, and the end result of that thing is putting stress on the body, either through delayed feeding times, through skipped meals or intermittent fasting, or just insufficient energy coming in, we're going to see that impact our cycle in most cases. You're listening to the Well Woman Podcast. I'm your host, Gemma Lee, women's menstrual cycle educator, natural fertility coach, and daytime mermaid. This is a place where we discuss all things periods, poo, ovulation, fertility, and sex. Join me weekly as we rediscover our menstrual cycles, unlock its superpowers, and guide you back into your cyclical nature. You are listening to episode 204 of the Well Woman podcast. Thank you so much for being here. This is an episode you are going to really enjoy, a topic that impacts us all, but sometimes we forget that it's even impacting us. And we're talking about consistent eating and why it's important to not skip meals. And if you are someone who skipped meals after listening to this episode, you're probably going to want to stop skipping meals. Today, we are joined by the beautiful Kaylee McDivitt, and she is a returning guest. She's already been on our show back at episode 103, where we talked about ovulation, everything you need to know. And yes, we really talked about everything you need to know about ovulation. And I asked Kaylee to come back and have this chat with us about consistency with eating because she's a registered dietitian and she utilizes functional lab testing to help her clients personalize their nutrition for optimal health and hormones. She runs a virtual practice and is the co-creator of an online women's health course and community called Her Hormones Academy. Kaylee is an absolutely amazing, beautiful soul, and you're going to see why in this episode. We are chatting about things like how important is consistent eating for your cycle and for your health? Why is breakfast so freaking important? And what you can do if you currently don't eat breakfast. We chat a lot about intermittent fasting and why we intermittent fast, why it's important to stop intermittent fasting if you are a female and of reproductive years and when it would potentially be possible in your cycle. Can we actually eat in a way that can impact our cycle health? We chat about that. And yes, we look at what does consistent eating even look like? Where do I start to create a meal and a way of eating daily that looks like consistency for a healthy cycle? And then we wrap it up with signs that you're not eating enough. Those important little dot points as to why you may get some insights from your body about why you're not eating enough. And that could look like irregular cycles, infertility, maybe you're cold all the time, low energy, hangry times. Yes, we are expanding on all of that at the end of this episode. So I trust you enjoy this episode as much as I did recording it with Kaylee. We are so excited that you're kickstarting your year with consistent eating with us and this show. Haley, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me back. You are so welcome. We had you, for those who are listening, back on episode 103, which feels like a lifetime ago. Um, mm-hmm. And we talked about all things ovulation. And that's because you are like, I consider one of the ovulation queens talking oh, about this that particular honored. topic. <laughs> well, it's true. It's so true. Um, but before like, I just jump in and ask you all the questions, tell us what day of your cycle you're on and how are you feeling? How are you checking in today? Yeah. Um, so cycle day one, which I just felt like was perfect to get to chat with you. And, you know, we had to reschedule this cause I was sick last week and it just happened to align with cycle day one and feeling good. You know, I generally feel good on the first day and, you know, energy is a little bit lower, but I like the more introspective kind of Mm. planting some seeds for how I want the next month to go. I really enjoy that part of it and have learned to enjoy the slowdown. So really feeling good today. Oh, that's so juicy. And I love that you're on day one. And can I ask you a question about that? Because Mm -hmm. I feel a lot of menstruators like, oh, I can't do anything on day one. And I wish Mm -hmm. I didn't have to go to work. I feel day one can be really, like you said, introspective. And sometimes when I'm teaching on day one, so many more insights come out of me that would not have ever happened before. (laughs) How does that feel for you? Oh, that totally lands. Yeah. This is like the part of the cycle where you're most in tune with yourself if if you allow it to be that way. And um, I really enjoy it. I feel the same way. I'm like making connections that I wouldn't normally and just more insightful. 
Mm, yes, way more insightful. So I feel really privileged that you're on Cycle Day <laughs> One with us today. It's like a beautiful honor to be able to share yeah. someone's day one, day two, day three of their cycle. So thank you. Thank um, you. Now, there's going to be a bunch of listeners that are subscribing and new to the podcast since you were joining us last. So tell us, who are you and why are you one yeah. of the ovulation queens? <laughs> I did not know I had that title, but I'm so excited to know it. You um, should change my- your Instagram bio now. Gemma said. Yes. <laughs> I will do that right after we get off. Um, yeah, but my name is Kaylee McDevitt. I am a registered dietitian and I specialize in women's health. And that's not at all what I intended to do with this career path. I uh, went to school thinking I was going to be in sports nutrition that's what I was interested in. I played sports growing up, but as fate would have it, when I was in school becoming a dietitian, I was dealing with horrendous hormone health issues. And it was predominantly related to birth control and um, trying really every type of birth control pill out there and never really feeling like myself. It progressed into pretty debilitating anxiety. Um, And I was finishing up seven total years of like college education in the health space and realized I had no clue how the female body worked, like zero idea and no idea how to apply nutrition to a women's health context to try to optimize hormones. So I ended up spending all of my free time learning all of these things that I wasn't taught in school. And ultimately the work that got me back to feeling like myself became like a huge pivot in my career to women's health. Cause I just realized how much of a need there was, um, at the time there weren't that many people talking about this stuff online it was really like my mom and my close girlfriends that were following my work. <laughs> and it has really just blossomed so much since then. And it's great to see the amount of interest and care and the amount of people doing work like you just spreading education and awareness. Um, and so I really have not looked back. So I run a, a virtual private practice and my team and I help clients overcome often longstanding hormone health issues or fertility issues through personalized nutrition. Um, I have the pleasure of training other practitioners on how to take the same lens we do in practice and use functional testing And then most recently, we put on an in-person women's health event that was two days long in Texas this year. And it was like the most stressful but cup-filling thing I've ever done. So I hope to do that again next year. And I'm just thinking, maybe I want to come to Texas next year. Oh my gosh, I would love that. (laughs) I haven't been. I used to come to the state pre Rona, I came to the States every year for like for nine years in a row and, you know, came for your summer and it, I, I have been in winter as well, but much preferred okay. the summer. And um, yeah, like maybe that's my excuse to come back. Um, I'm I always looking it. for excuses that my, my business can help me get there. If you know what I yeah. mean. Oh, I would love um, to have you there. <laughs> mm, well, that's like amazing. Thank you. And like I said earlier, if you're listening to this and you haven't already heard our first episode together, um, Kaylee talks all about ovulation, everything, literally the podcast episode's called Ovulation, Everything You Need to Know, but we talk <laughs> about everything to do with ovulation. So that's what that episode's about. And today we're talking about a really important topic that I think the food industry and the diet industry, I don't like that word, but you know, the mm. diet industry has really encouraged women for far too long or created this thought about, oh, it's totally fine for me to skip breakfast. And, you know, I can, I can live on one meal a day. Like that's healthy, isn't it? And that's consistent eating and why it's important to not skip meals. So let's kick it off. How important is it to consistently eat? Like what about skipping meals? So tell us about that. Mm. It's so, so important. It's so important. And this is something that comes up all the time in the clients we serve and shoot. I mean, this was me too, when I was dealing with all the hormone troubles I went through, that was when intermittent fasting first uh, came onto the scene and Mm. and really low carb dieting. I was like combining them all thought I was doing the best thing ever for health. Um, And the reason why this matters so much like for women specifically, is that our physiology is rooted in safety. And if you've listened to our first podcast or ever been on my Instagram page, that's something that you'll hear me say, like probably to the point of annoying because I say it all the time. Um, But everything is rooted in safety and our body determines whether or not we're safe by the way that we eat, the way that we live, the way that we move, the way that we think. And if we are missing meals, if we're under eating, if we're giving our body any reason to believe there's inconsistent energy and inconsistent safety, we're going to have hormone repercussions of that eventually. It might not be right away, um, but eventually those wheels fall off. Um, And I can 
pretty darn well guarantee that because that's what we see in practice. <laughs> it's like riding your bike and the training wheels falling off and you're still needing the training wheels and then you just collapse with your bike. Like, yes. Boom on the side. Yeah. You might make it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, right. And I think the, what we don't realize is as a society is that it's the things we do. I, I'm always saying, I feel like a burnt out record, but it's the things <laughs> we do every day that count, not the things we do sometimes. And so like, if you skip a meal, sometimes it's better for you than skipping a meal every mm-hmm. day. And I remember growing up, my mom never used to eat breakfast. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm just having this memory now thinking about skipping meals. My mom never, love you, mom, if you were listening to this, but <laughs> never you know, used to eat breakfast. And I remember she was going on a weight loss journey. She was never super overweight, but you know, that nineties, early two thousands, wanting to lose weight. That was the thing for women. And, um, it all started like pro positively for her when she started eating breakfast Mm -hmm. every day. And so tell us why is it so important? I want to ask you about intermittent fasting too, but why is it so important to eat breakfast? Because do you see this yourself? Like people skipping breakfast, they think, mm-hmm. you know, I'll just have the bigger meals at the end of the day. Yep. Yeah. I think this is the most commonly skipped meal from the clients that we see. And I think it has in part to do with the idea of intermittent fasting, which I know we'll talk about too, but also mornings can be really busy and really hectic, especially if you're rushing out the door to work, or maybe you're a mom of several kids and it's just, you're, you're taking care of everybody else and not yourself. So I do find that breakfast tends to fall to the wayside more often than other meals. And breakfast is especially important because we just ended an evening of sleep. So the word breakfast literally means we're breaking our fast. So that meal is supposed to Penny come drop in. for people who have yeah. never heard that before. <laughs> yeah. It's like when you think of carbohydrates and it says carbohydrate and they're like, oh, mm-hmm. wow. Sorry, go on. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. I know all these words make sense if we break them down, but yeah, breakfast is there to break our fast. And if we've slept, you know, seven, eight, nine hours, we've gone a good chunk of time without nourishment. And we've started to deplete our supplies of glycogen, which is what keeps our blood sugar up in the absence of eating. And if we continue on in that way, where we're not giving any new food in, we have a backup mechanism that can come in for us. And that's our stress hormone cortisol to help keep blood sugar up. So if we delay breakfast, to the point in which our blood sugar starts to drop, our cortisol has to come onto the scene and step in. Now we're riding through the day on a stress hormone roller coaster, which again, occasionally, if this happens, you know, infrequently, this isn't going to be largely detrimental. We are resilient beings, thank goodness. But if this happens day in and day out, we've created a situation where we have a lot of stress hormones in our system. And rather than relying on food to keep blood sugar up, cortisol is doing that job for us. And then the other big thing with breakfast is that we know from research in type two diabetes and prediabetes that a well-rounded protein rich breakfast will keep blood sugar steady the rest of the day. And we could keep the, the amount of food and amount of carb constant, but if we just spread that out to include breakfast versus just having lunch and dinner, it's a completely different effect on blood sugar stability. And that's a really important way that we keep safety in the body is to keep blood sugar nice and steady. So breakfast is the MVP with that. Oh, I like that. Breakfast is the MVP. (laughs) Most valuable player. Mm -hmm. I am. And I love that you mentioned about protein because personally, something that I've been working on since I experienced a termination in the end of 2020 was having really consistent protein in the morning. And I've battled with it a little bit and you know, I've always in the past, I've always been someone who does eat breakfast, but I'd like, I'd wake up, I'd go for a walk, go to yoga, come home. It's nine o'clock. And I'm yep. like, okay, I've been up for four hours and I haven't had anything to eat. And a, today's a great example, right? I, today's Tuesday for me. And it's, I practice Mysore for people who don't know what Mysore is. That's a form of yoga. That's, you know, like an Ashtanga lineage. It's a very hard yoga. And I get to the yoga studio at quarter past five, 20 past five in the morning. And Yoga, traditionally, you're supposed to have an empty stomach for four hours before you practice. Mm-hmm. And because it's quite a deep practice, like if I eat too soon, close to that time, I, I feel sick. So I don't eat anything. And so I, I've had this battle, like, do I wake up and how could I get some a little bit of protein in, but then still go to yoga because it's a two and a half hour yoga practice. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. And then I come home and I've sweated so much. And so 
And I'm sharing this vulnerably because I think it's important to recognize that that's part of life sometimes too. Mm -hmm. But I found a little key and you can tell me if it's wrong. Um, (laughs) I'm happy to be doing the wrong thing, but having a bit of bone broth before I I go. And my Chinese um, acupuncture, uh, acupuncturist like gave me this insight. I was like, I never thought about bone broth because yes, I want to have something nice and nurturing with, and I normally drink about, you know, I don't know how much it is in, in America, but like a full (laughs) cup, like more than two fistfuls of water, like maybe three fistfuls of water first thing in the morning when I wake up after I tongue scrape, but I was like bone broth. That's like genius. Why didn't I think it's genius? I know. So (laughs) that's on the days when I'm like, I have a morning, like I did this morning, I'll start with a little bit of bone broth first. And then when I come home, I'll have my protein breakfast. Um, but I feel like that would happen to a lot of people. They just kind of mm-hmm. wake up. Oh my God, I feel like I'm starting the day behind and just rush. Yeah. So what is important to eat for breakfast? You said protein, but could you give us yeah. some examples? For sure. Yeah. So protein is the thing that we tend to focus on the most because it seems to be underrepresented on breakfast plates. And usually our grab, grab and go breakfast, if it's a rushed morning, protein is going to be the hardest to come by because it usually involves some kind of prep or cooking. Um, but we really want protein, carbs, and fat together. So all three macronutrients represented at all meals, ideally. And this is going to set you up for the most success for blood sugar stability. And also that the food's going to taste good. We're going to feel really satiated from it when we have all three macronutrients together. So carbs, proteins, and fats together at breakfast. We'll repeat that formula at lunch and dinner as well. Um, but breakfast is really what sets that tone for the day and make sure that we're not relying on cortisol to get through. We've got stable blood sugar. We've got plenty of healthy fats around to build hormones, to keep our brain clear. And we've got, you know, carbohydrates in that meal too. So having time for breakfast is the biggest barrier. It sounds like you get the same kind of insight from your audience and, and clients too, where it's like the morning just goes quick and there's not a lot of space for it. And I do think like creating the opportunity to slow down a little bit is a big part of how we undo the damage that the diet industry has done to women specifically. It's like we expect our biology to thrive in a society and an environment that does not set us up for success where we're like running around and we're not ever calming our nervous system. And we can't really be expected to digest and absorb nutrients in that state anyways. So my first thing would be to challenge what's going on in your morning. Is there any wiggle room where we can create some space for you? Even if it's like three minutes where you just get a couple of slow, deep breaths, get to like chew food, you know, instead of just scarfing it down. Um, So it would be to think about mornings. How can we give some of that time back to you? And if there is no way around it, which I get, there are certain seasons of life and circumstances where there's nothing we can do. We can try to come up with some portable options or make ahead options that will minimize your workload in the morning and you can take with you um, things that you can drink, things that are pre-made already, um, like smoothies make good on-the-go options that will have carbs, proteins, and fats together. The bone broth idea is genius to get some protein in the morning. And I love that as a pre-workout anyways, because of all the minerals and electrolytes in there, especially if you're going to be sweating. Um, and if you wake up without an appetite because you've skipped breakfast for so long, some of those liquid types of ideas can help ease that appetite back. So I would start there anyways. Good integration too. It's kind of like <laughs> trying to quit coffee and then just cutting the coffee out and then just yeah. leaving this <laughs> hole where your coffee used to live, you know, um, so many great little tips in there. And I think, you know, having, meals that can be easily accessed it's important for so many people um but Mm -hmm. don't make that an like an excuse that you fall into that habit where you just always have the easily accessible meal and that Mm -hmm. comes back to and I'd love to actually hear your thought on this speaking about smoothies you know if I was to think about when I came off the hormonal contraceptive pill and then I discovered I had PCOS at that time in my life you know I was very much like I was you know, I had leaky gut just before that. So Mm -hmm. I was very much doing the juicing and I was doing smoothies and I was really in that world of liquids. I was liquefied. Mm -hmm. And then I started studying Ayurveda and I was like, oh, wow, this is really, Mm. really different. It's (laughs) completely the opposite. And it's like, okay, don't have salad all the time and don't always have the smoothie. And so we look at 
And there's some big names out there who promote detoxing with really fresh raw food. Yeah. But what's a, like a healthy balance? I know cyclical eating, I'm always like at least two of those seasons of your cycle, those phases need to be really warm foods and mm-hmm. maybe the raw and the colder foods in the other seasons. But as a dietitian, yeah. like what, what, what do you suggest and what are your thoughts? Yeah, uh, my thoughts are that we definitely should not be having liquids for all meals or even just like cold, raw vegetables at all meals. It just doesn't do us any favors from like a physical digestion standpoint. And then even from a satiety standpoint, like if I drink the exact same number of calories and same macronutrients in a smoothie or eat it in a meal where I got an opportunity to chew and like experience texture and like feel that volume as I swallow, it's a completely different fullness that you would get. So I like to leverage smoothies when we're trying to coax the appetite back and maybe we're waking up and we might feel a little sick to our stomachs or we're like, Oh, repulsed by the idea of breakfast. It can be easier to literally stomach something liquid first, where we at least know we're getting nutrients in a fast to absorb form. Um, but we really should move toward actual whole food that we're chewing um, more often than not, because I just think that there's so much value in like the chewing process. I mean, it helps with digestion and it helps with satiety. And I don't think, you know, and I'm not an expert in the Ayurveda realm at all, but my acupuncturist also brought to my attention that probably cold smoothies and ice cold water and all of these things are probably not helping. And it makes sense to me that we would be keeping our bodies warm for the most part. So we don't do a big reliance on cold smoothies, but we'll use them if we're trying to ease back into getting some nourishment in the morning. Mm-hmm. And I'm human too. Like I've had mornings where I'm like, oh my God, my day is so, like I just, the last week I taught at a school and I was there for five hours. I taught 500 kids across oh, cool. all different age. Yeah, it was really cool. But I was also like, shit, I have to drive in traffic. I normally work from home. I don't ever drive in traffic. <laughs> and I didn't get to go to yoga that morning. So like things are really rushed for me. I was like, this is what mm. people who have jobs yeah. and have to drive to their job every day is like, I'm like, wow, this is a lot. And so I like, I had my pre-packed lunch, which was like leftover curry from the night before. So we made extra meals. So that was good. But then for breakfast, I made a smoothie and popped it in a jar and then took it with me. So I wasn't like quickly mm-hmm. wagging it down <laughs> before I yeah. left. But a tip that I found really helpful is I knew I would have to make a smoothie that morning. The night before I was like, mm-hmm. okay, I'm going to have to make a smoothie. So the ingredients I needed, I actually got out of the fridge and left them on the counter in the kitchen. Mm, yeah. And I pre-soaked some chia seeds so that they were already pre-soaked. So I could pop a few teaspoons of those soaked in, but I was still having a smoothie and it was easily accessible. Had, you know, like you said, proteins, carbs, and fats but it wasn't freezing cold. And that's like that. one way you can kind of like get around it. And the other thing that I'm um, speaking about our acupuncturists um, <laughs> that my acupuncturist just last week recommended with my bone broth, she's like crack an egg in it. And I was like, what? Mm. She's like, and I've not done this yet because I'm still a bit like, I don't like runny egg. You know, mm, I'm, yeah. I'm not really a meat eater. So runny eggs for me, like really freak me out a little bit. So she's like, yeah, just boil the broth and maybe you do it on a pot and like on the stove. And I was like, okay. And she's like, and then crack an egg, a raw egg in. I was like a raw egg in my broth. Really? And yeah, she said, and then it becomes like it cooks as liquid and then it's not like a chunky egg and it's mixer and you get extra protein and it's still a bit of a drink. And I was like, oh my God, this is so next level for me. I haven't even tried it yet, but I was like, well, wow, maybe you need that's to try. I'll have to try and back. report. Yes. Report to everybody. Um, but it just goes to show that like the eating and that, you know, the saliva buildup is really important mm. and the connection of food and prepping the food and cutting it and the scent, like your sensual experience of prepping, cooking, eating is so important. Thanks for sharing on that. Today's episode is sponsored by Eco Modern Essentials. Over the last year and a half, I've fallen in love with their essential oil blends and my diffuser is going nonstop in my home and my office and everything smells delicious when you enter my house. I've fallen in love particularly though with their mindset collection. It's a premium collection of essential oil blends curated with intention to elevate your mindset. You can connect with each story of each individual blend and what it represents and take that into your day along with its positive attribute and blend name. 
A dollar from every Mindset Collection purchase will be donated equally across the six mentioned charities on their website. Head to ecomodernessentials.com.au and use the code GEMMALEE10 to save on purchases over $85. This discount code cannot be used with any other code or offer and cannot be used on recurring subscription boxes. If you want to learn more about them and their cheeky, amazing blends, head to their Instagram page as well, ecomodernessentials. Let's talk about intermittent fasting because mm-hmm. I th- I've noticed in a lot of my fertility clients, one of the biggest hurdles is like, oh, but I always fasted. Like I fasted mm-hmm. for like three years. Like that can't be the thing that's wrong with my fertility. So how does intermittent fasting work for females? Does it work for females? Yeah. And how does it work for males? And does it work for males? Yeah. Um, really, really good question and common in our practice too. And It's hard because a lot of times you'll feel really good when you first start doing something like this. You know, we actually feel generally pretty good when we have a lot of stress hormones in our system because we feel like our brain's really working fast and maybe we're like really getting things done in our life or in our work. And um, we start to associate that feeling with good and productive and good energy. And then we might hear like, oh, maybe intermittent fasting isn't the best thing for me to do. Maybe I'll just see what happens if I eat breakfast And then actually start to feel a little sluggish because we're not relying on those stress hormones that we got so accustomed to. And so typically what happens is a client will do that. They'll be like, oh, I didn't feel like I didn't feel good. So it must mean that that's not a fit for me. And I think it's an important lesson in remembering that when we transition off of stress hormones, we sometimes have this like inner or in between limbo period where we don't really know how that's going to go for us because we've gotten so used to feeling like high on adrenaline all the time that not being high on adrenaline doesn't feel good. And it takes some time to recalibrate your system because we get really addicted to a certain level of stress hormones. So that's one piece of it. And I guess I should back up and explain if anyone's new to this concept, intermittent fasting just means that we're delaying our first meal. Um, any number of hours. And there's a lot of variety to this. Some people believe intermittent fasting is just a 12 hour overnight fast. Some people will extend that to 14, 16 or 18 hours. Some people will sprinkle in occasional full day fasts throughout their week. And kind of all of that lives under the umbrella of intermittent fasting. And there's very, very little, if any fasting research on women, which is a really difficult thing to be in the nutrition space and have like no data on women. And it's hard to study women because we have completely different hormone environments week to week in a cycle. It's a lot of variables. And if you're a researcher, you're trying to minimize variables. So it's difficult to study women. Um, Hence why they just use men in their studies because they're the same every day. (sighs) Yes. And that is completely different than how it is for women. So we can't take research done on men and apply that to women. And that's kind of how we've gotten to this space with intermittent fasting as we've seen that actually works quite well for men, as long as stress is managed in their life. Um, You can see some good blood sugar, insulin sensitivity, like metabolic health responses in men. And then we're applying that same template to women and then being confused when we have different outcomes. And my professional opinion is that it's not a fit for menstruating females. I think post-menopause, we might have more room to play with that kind of an approach to eating. But for pre-menopausal females, especially if conception is a goal of yours, we need every opportunity to promote safety in the body and the way we eat and the time of which we eat is the easiest, most in our control thing we can do. Mm, It goes back to what you were saying before about how you know, we're so geared to thrive and that's what we are designed to do. But instead in reflection of the outer world that we live in, we're really just trying to survive. Mm -hmm. And so we want to take survival to thriving. Um, Yeah. So you're spot on. And I love that you mentioned about the, like the data around men and the research, because Mm -hmm. we really operate so differently. And one of the biggest questions I receive around this is, okay, well, I know it's not good, but like, if I wanted to do it, like when in my cycle would be the best time. And I'm like, uh, never. I know. <laughs> and they're like, oh, but I'm sure there's only like, the, the, come on, there's got to be two or three days that I could do, you know, some fasting, or maybe I could do a juice fast. And I'm like, oh God, this is not like, I'm like, the yeah, answer is still the same. Right. And the question is why, you know, what is the motivation behind it? Because 
we're not going to accomplish much of anything in three days or two days or however long we're talking about. So what's the, what is the purpose? And -hmm. I think that's always a good question to filter these kinds of decisions through is like, wait, why am I doing this? Am I trying to outsmart my body? Am I trying to manipulate my body? And really any answer outside of being on the same team as your body is going to get you into some trouble eventually, typically. And I've found a lot of the time it's to do with image yep, or, or perception of the body. Um, and that's not all that, always the answer. And I, I just want to share a little story is that recently I did a vision quest and I was out in the bush for 10 days. And of four of those days, I was alone in the bush and part of vision questing, you know, like Native American vision questing, um, you fast on water. And so I used to be a faster back when I had leaky gut, I found having big digestive rests actually was very beneficial for me, but I then also found out I had PCOS. So how beneficial was it? I don't really know, but um, it made me feel good at the moment. But then fast forward to here, I had four days of water fast and I hadn't water fasted in probably like eight years. And I used to do it once a week, every week for a whole day. And afterwards I didn't shit for three days. Like I, I, I shat whilst I was fasting because obviously yeah. I had to get rid of all the other food and I'm being really open. Like, so people get what happens to your body mm-hmm. and I'm very aware of like listening to my body and the signs it's giving me with food. So when I came back after fasting for the four days, I was very like nurturing, you know, I had kitchery, like just yeah. a handful of kitchery. It was like half a mug. And then that was my first meal and slowly introducing food. But three or four days after I got back, my cravings for sugar were through the roof. It was like I was arrested. I wasn't fasting and then still living my life. I literally did a lot of sleeping and I was sitting and meditating. So it was very neutral. You know, it wasn't like exerting a lot of energy, but I noticed and witnessed how much my body changed. And I was just like, wow, I can see my body's craving this food so much. I was like, babe, we need eggs on toast. And I was like, I just need all this stuff for breakfast, you know? And um, I was, all I really wanted was to have like, you know, just give me some deep fried food or something like that. And I was like, no, Gemma, you're going to make a root vegetable, buckwheat pasta with spinach. And that's what's, that's what you're going to have for dinner. And <laughs> You know, it's beautiful to be in witness of the body when you can see that that's what's going on and you're like, wow, my body's really craving something because of how I treated it. And if Mm -hmm. we all had that awareness, I think it would change a lot. Like, what are your thoughts? Oh, yeah. I think the body knows so much more than we give it credit for. And we've gotten so good at outsourcing our decisions around food and exercise and and health really in general and trusting that somebody else or some other program knows best. Um, But I promise you that you do know best and it takes time to get back in touch and to establish that relationship again and to learn how to like develop that intuition muscle. But when you're in touch with yourself in that way, like you experienced too, like your body knows exactly what it needs and it asks for it very clearly. And it's so cool to be able to witness that. And I think an opportunity to experience the magic that is being a woman is the deep level of intuition and innate knowing that is available to us. And that's something that I can get really passionate about and want for everyone to experience because it's really incredible. And if you're listening to this, chances are that's of interest to you because you're in this world here, but um, I completely agree with you. Mm, Listen to your body it knows what it wants and needs. Mm -hmm. If you take away the ego and all the BS, like it definitely knows. Um, So tell us, Kaylee, can the way that we eat and maybe not eat if we're trying to fast, Mm -hmm. can that affect our cycles, like our menstrual cycle? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So like we mentioned in the beginning, a one-off thing where we skipped a breakfast or maybe we did something that required fasting. You know, there, there are some cultural, spiritual, and even physical benefits to fasting that is well-documented. And if it's well thought out and we're taking care of ourselves before and after we can, we can make that work. Um, that's not a big deal in terms of cycle health typically, but when we're doing something day in and day out, And the end result of that thing is putting stress on the body, either through delayed feeding times, through skipped meals or intermittent fasting, or just insufficient energy coming in. We're going to see that impact our cycle in most cases. And it might look like cycles getting a little bit more irregular. It might look like ovulation not happening at all eventually, and then loss of cycle. It just depends on your unique 
biology, really, it does seem like different women are more sensitive to changes in energy availability and um, any pre-existing conditions that might be present. But typically what we see with prolonged undereating is um, impaired fertility or eventual loss of cycle. Yes. And I think that can also be linked to sport, like over-exercising, yes. especially if you're an athlete and, yep. and your body is your business and you're a professional athlete. You know, there are times when you are very specific with your food. Let's just say you're a female boxer and you've got to meet a certain weight, you know. Yeah. Okay. So out of that, you're putting your body as your business first, as opposed to your body as a reproductive house. And that's mm-hmm. okay. That's totally fine. But you just have to be aware of the choice and the consequences. Yeah. Is that what you would agree with too? Yeah. And exercise is the same thing. Like when we say energy availability, we are taking into account energy coming in through food and energy being expended through movement. So we can run into the exact same scenario with really ramped up training that we can with not eating enough. Mm, And I remember going through a really, really heartbreaking, heavy, psychologically fucked up breakup. (laughs) Mm-hmm. and I lost like eight kilos and I'm quite lean anyway. And I was eating so much food, but that was like, my body was running a marathon every day, mm-hmm. but without the physical exertion, it was the mental and emotional exertion. And I just, I wanted to share that because sometimes it can be the stress in your life. And that's why looking at that whole lifestyle factor, and I know you guys do that in your clinic, right? Yeah. Yeah, What a potent example of how big of a deal it is to be under a lot of stress and how that can have the exact same perception to your body as running a marathon every day or not eating enough, even if those things aren't happening. And then the world's like, oh, but you look so good. Oh my God, your body looks Uh, amazing. And I'm like, okay. So then in my mind, not me personally, but a lot of people would think, okay, so this is how my body, my, my, my life needs to be. So my body can be the way that is desired by others. When actually is that in alignment with what's your highest good? So like so we could go on a big rant there, I but <laughs> I think that I think we'll just leave it at that. But just yeah, look at look at your stress, look at your movement, look at your food. Yep. Now I'd love for you to give us an example like what does consistent eating actually look like? Because I feel yeah. like some people have like an interpretation of what this might be, <laughs> but what does consistent eating look like for a female who's working on their reproductive health and their cycle? Yeah. So we like to describe this as gentle nutrition. We're really just trying to be gentle on the body because your food is one of the most modifiable sources of stress that we have throughout the day. We want to take advantage of that because not all stress is modifiable. We can't like immediately quit jobs and abandon family members that stress us out. So we got to take advantage of the food. So eating consistently looks like waking up and having breakfast within an hour is usually what we're looking for. So hopefully that alleviates some stress knowing you don't have to like the second your eyes open, be ready to eat some food. You got about an hour would be a good goal for nourishment. And this should have protein, carbohydrates, and fat. So this might look like eggs and toast with some butter or some fruit on the side. It can look, if you like meats in the morning, you can certainly add that into the mix to increase the protein count. Or maybe we've got some yogurt to add some protein to the mix or some bone broth, which now I'm obsessed with the idea of having that in the morning. So I'm going to be trying that. Um, And breakfast with coffee, if you're a coffee drinker or coffee after breakfast. So what we want to get away from is having a cup of coffee on an empty stomach before we've had any nourishment. And that's a big thing too, I think is common with the skipped breakfast is usually there's some caffeine coming in still, which just exacerbates that whole stress hormone thing that we were talking about before. So we've got breakfast with coffee or coffee after within an hour of waking. And then typically every three to four hours or so is a good place to start when we're looking at gentle nutrition. And we're trying to have another balanced meal or snack every three to four hours throughout the day to prevent drops in blood sugar. And you may end up being able to spread that out farther. Maybe it's more like four or five hours for you long-term, but if you're new to it, start with three to four hours and just see how you feel. See how you feel when you get to that next three to four hour interval. Is there appetite? Is there drive to eat? Are you like, oh, I'm still stuffed from the previous meal, then we might expand the time. If you're barely making it three hours and you're like ravenous, then we know we need to either increase the amount that was in the previous meal or snack or maybe shorten the time frame. Um, and then your general structure for meals and snacks should be carbs, proteins, and fats together. And it's kind of boring because it's all the same, but that's really the formula for keeping blood sugar steady. And we would do so to the end of the day. 
we'd go to sleep and then we'd start that again. And that's what a day looks like, everybody. Um, <laughs> I love that you mentioned about coffee and not starting your day with coffee and then the home yeah. hormonal confusion, mm-hmm. I think is a is a good word because we think we have energy when really we're relying on adrenaline and cortisol mm-hmm. instead of actually producing our own energy. And then we do that for so long. And then we're like, oh, why do I feel so burnt out? It's because your body's mm-hmm. not producing any energy. Anyway. <laughs> yes. Amen. Been there. Been there for sure. <laughs> But I'd love to ask with coffee, does that also apply for men and non-menstruators? I know you mentioned like don't start, like eat food and then have coffee. For those who live on that 24-hour cycle, Mm -hmm. um, does that affect them as much? So the reason we get that energy rush from caffeine is we do get a transient rise in our stress hormones. That's what's giving us that like zap of energy and that get up and go. So that's definitely affecting anyone that's consuming caffeine, male, female menstruating or not. Um, it's definitely more consequential in menstruators because we have such a delicate ecosystem of hormones and, and regulating safety. Um, but there are a lot of really stressed out men too. And if you've got a lot of unmanaged stress and a lot of different avenues in life, we really don't want to be kicking those adrenal glands while they're down by having a lot of caffeine on an empty stomach. So we don't work with male clients here, but usually there's like husbands or partners that have questions sometimes too. And that's the recommendation. Like, why would we disrespect your stress system with a whole bunch of caffeine if we've got really unmanaged stress? So same thing for them. Yes. Very important. (laughs) You are also trying to survive um, thrive, yeah. sorry, not just survive. Um, so two more quick little questions on what does consistent eating look like in a day? Yeah. Meal size. Because mm. I feel like some people are like, well, I've got this extra big plate. And I know you live in the States and I'm in Australia. And, you know, being someone who travels all the time to America, man, everything is so big there. Like it's so big. And I come home and I'm like, oh, the plates are so, the meals here, you don't get any value. They're so small when you go out for dinner. Um, So meal size, what's like, let's talk about if we're eating three main meals and then having snacks between, what's a meal size recommended? Yeah. And this is one of those things that when you have practiced getting back in touch with your own hunger and fullness cues and desires, this is pretty self- regulating. It's pretty amazing. You'll plate exactly what you want and you'll be able to gauge that based on your fullness. But to start, we're looking to get about 20 to 30 grams of protein at a meal. Um, and that would constitute a meal snacks don't need to be quite as robust. So 20 to 30 grams of protein. Um, and depending on the form of that protein, that'll change the volume quite a bit on, on your plate, but that's step one. We want to secure that as the base of that meal. And then carbohydrates, we're generally looking for anywhere from like 20 to 40 grams of that as well at a meal to start. And then for fat, we're usually looking for like a tablespoon or two of that. So this obviously is going to look very different on the plate, depending on which items we chose for carbs, proteins, and fat, because some of them are more voluminous than others. Um, But that's the easiest way to have like a blanket prescription for meal size. And that's how we'll start coaching our clients. It's like, you can choose the foods, you can plug and play how you want, but this is what we want to stick to at first Mm. until we develop those skills to really understand where I feel best. Do I feel better with a little more carb or maybe less? Is this a good amount of protein for me? Do I want more fats? Is my feeling still hungry after these meals? But it's usually helpful to have some ground rules to start with, and then you can expand from there. Mm, I love that. And something I always love to remind <laughs> my clients is like, let's all make a fist. That's how big oh, your yeah. stomach is. And when you look at your fist and then think about what you had for dinner last night, how big is your <laughs> meal compared to your stomach? And I think that, um, like I said, that quite comical because the answer is always like, holy shit, I ate so much more food than the st- size of my stomach. Yeah. Um, and like after fasting for four days and coming out, like, I was watching because we were in a massive group. There's 56 of us, all women. And I was just like, oh my God, they're all eating so much food. They're going to not feel at all good after this. Mm -hmm. Like, and you just fasted for four days. And like, you got to like nurture that little baby stomach. And it is a lot smaller than we think it is. So look at your size of your plate. And I love having a smaller bowl and just having a Mm -hmm. smaller plate. And you just are going to fill it up anyway. So the bigger the plate, the more food you'll probably eat. True Um, story. It's so true. It's so true. Because if you go out for dinner and the plate is so much bigger than the meal, you're like, well, where's all the rest of the meal? Even though the mm-hmm. meal is probably still very filling. Um, now, dinner, speaking of dinner, 
Is there a, a guideline of like eating a certain time before bedtime? Mm-hmm. I know some people like eat dinner and then just go straight to bed. I like yeah. to eat dinner like a few, like at least two hours before I sleep, at least. Um, what yeah. Like you're the food guru. Tell us what's the go. <laughs> yeah, I prefer dinner to be several hours before you go to sleep just to give yourself the best chance of adequate digestion. You know, the feeling of if you ate a big dinner and then immediately laid down, like it just kind of sits heavy. It can be disruptive for your sleep because it's, you know, costing and creating energy to break that food down. And if we think about the fact that we're supposed to be in tune with this circadian rhythm and really, you know, eating during the time that the sun is up and not really eating during the time that the sun is down. So trying to have that dinner meal before the sun sets is a good rule of thumb if it's possible because actually our ability to digest, like our digestive enzymes and the bacteria in our gut that help with nutrient activation are increased during the sun being up. And once the sun sets, we're going to have a decreased ability to digest and absorb nutrients. So we aren't this 24 hour diner that's like open and available at all times. We actually have optimal meal. But you don't have bottomless (laughs) coffee? (laughs) Nope, no bottomless coffee. Though some seasons of my life did feature bottomless coffee and Mm -hmm. didn't do me well. (laughs) But um, I think that that's a good rule of thumb for your dinner meal. And then sometimes we will incorporate a bedtime snack. It really just depends on um, kind of the point in somebody's healing journey, what might be going on with them? Are they waking frequently throughout the night? If we're suspecting that that's from low blood sugar episodes, we might have a small bedtime snack, um, but that's separate from dinner, which we would want a couple hours before we go to bed. And that snack is not a bowl of ice cream. Right. <laughs> Um, no, that's a really good point. My partner's going to hate me in winter, you know, when there's much less daylight, um, yeah. because I'm always like, we need to eat so much earlier. And he's like, oh, well, let's eat at 8 30. I'm like, no. Yeah. <laughs> and no, I'm like, I can't wait just so we have kids so we can eat at 5 30. And then we like, I don't, it's not my fault that we eat early. Yes. <laughs> oh, this is fantastic. All right. We're nearly out of time, but I'd love to ask you a final podcast question signs that you're not eating enough. Like how could I know if I'm not eating enough food? Like what's like, how can I listen to my body? What am I looking out for? Yeah. Low energy is a big one. So feeling like you're just dragging, either you wake up and you're like, yeah, I feel like I got enough sleep, but there's no gas in the tank. Or maybe that energy falls off in the mid afternoon. And we're really probably reaching for that additional cup of coffee in that time frame, Or maybe we get really hangry and need a snack in that window. Um, that was me last I, week. <laughs> anger is real. When that blood sugar drops, it's like desperation for food. So if you're noticing that, like we're kind of getting shaky and irritable, um, we're definitely not eating enough. Preoccupation with food is a big one too. Like if we're obsessively thinking about what the next meal is going to have, or even like pre-planning uh, how many calories that meal is going to have, there's, um, you know, your brain is smart. And if we're not eating enough, it's going to spend a lot of its resources thinking about how you can get your hands on food. So if you find that too much of your mental space is taken up with food decisions, that could be another sign. Irregular or absent menstrual cycles or struggling to conceive can be clues that we need to at least check in on the amount that we're eating, feeling cold all the time, cold hands and feet to start. But then if just you're the one that's like, got two sweaters on when everybody else is in a tank top, or maybe your significant others like, gosh, your feet feel like ice cubes when they touch me under the covers at night. Um, <laughs> that can be definitely a sign. And then um, like externally hair loss, or even just like dullness of hair, and then loss of the outer third of your eyebrow is pretty consistent with an underactive Ooh, I, thyroid. I like that tip. Mm-hmm. The outer third of your eyebrow. Wow. Okay. Yeah, which is it that's related more to underactive thyroid, but that's one of the compensatory mechanisms your body has with prolonged undereating is to slow down the thyroid. So we tend to see those hypothyroid symptoms like cold body, low basal body temperatures, cold hands and feet, loss of the outer third of eyebrow hair, can be loss of some scalp hair too. Um, those would be some signs. And then one other sign that sometimes is confusing, but I want to mention too, is sometimes we have a complete loss of appetite if we've been under eating. And this is when typically the under eating has gone on for quite some time. And it's kind of like when you are banging on the door to get somebody's attention. And that's like your body being like, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, but nobody's answering. And eventually you give up on that signaling. And the same thing happens with our hunger and fullness cues. So sometimes we lose 
that appetite and that drive to eat if it's been so long that we've been undernourished. And that's where giving yourself some grace and gradually increasing intake is going to be really important. And I mean, you experienced it post fasting where you needed to start small and, you know, take care of that stomach that is quite small. Um, same thing with under eating if it's been going on long term. Mm, yep. Don't, um, Rome wasn't built in a day. No. <laughs> Slow and steady wins the race. I always love to say it's a tortoise race, not a hare race. And mm-hmm. the rest of the world can be running like a hare, but you need to be more like a tortoise. So how do we work on that? Yes, um, gosh, isn't that the hardest thing to put blinders on to how everyone else is doing it? Yes. Yes. And that's like, you know, I always use the car analogy of like, just stay in your own lane. Like when you're mm-hmm. driving, like don't be driving someone else's car when they're driving it, like stay in yeah. your own lane. Um, cause you know, your body loves you. So love your body back. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. So juicy. Now tell us <laughs> all listeners, how can they find you? How can they learn more about what you do? Your online clinic, yeah. all the things. Sure. Yeah. So you could find me on Instagram primarily do not have the capacity for multiple <laughs> social media platforms. So I do almost everything through Instagram and my handle is, um, at Kaylee RD and my name is spelled weird. It's K A E L Y and then RD. I love the way find, it's spelled. Oh, thank not you. weird at all. <laughs> <laughs> no one ever knows how to spell it when I go to coffee and they, you know, have to write my name on the cup. But um, we do really all the educating and like free content on social media. And then you'll be able to see um, links to websites and services and anything we can do to support you um, through Instagram as well. Mm, so beautiful. Thank you so much for being here. Um, final podcast question. Now I asked you in this same question in our last episode and normally I change okay. it up, but I feel like I just want to ask you the same question because it might be different okay. compared to last time. Think back to your younger menstruating self. I don't know whether you remember this question or not, but I don't. <laughs> oh, okay. Good. So it's fresh. It's raw. Um, what are three things you wish you had have known when you started menstruating Menarch mm-hmm. first bleed that you now know today? What are three okay. things you wish you knew? Oh, gosh, I wish I knew that that was my superpower and not something that was inconvenient or needed to be suppressed because I went on birth control shortly after I ever started my period. Um, I wish I knew that any symptoms that came up from that was just my body trying to tell me something that needed support. I wish I knew that it didn't have to be that way. I think there was so much messaging around me at that age that periods were miserable and annoying and gross and like just needed to be avoided at all costs that there, it wasn't even on my mind that it was possible to have like a easy, enjoyable period. So I wish Mm. I knew those three things back then. My health trajectory would have been completely different. (laughs) Who knows? You might not have even become a dietitian. Yeah, I might not have. (laughs) Um, but that's beautiful. Three things I know that I wish I had have learned too. And you're spot on, you know, your period is your superpower and your cycle is your, is like your anchor, you know, mm-hmm. it's like your beautiful guide. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for sharing all of your beautiful food wisdom around mm-hmm. consistent eating and all of those links to connect with Kaylee online will be in the show notes and Hun, thank you so much for being here. It's been so so good to have mm-hmm. you back. Thanks so much for having me back. It's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning in to every episode of the Well Woman Podcast. For everything we mentioned in today's episode, you can find this in the show notes over at wellsome.com forward slash podcast. If this episode excited you, please hit follow on Spotify, which means all of my episodes will pop up in your feed weekly so you never miss a weekly drop. I'd love you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts too. Love this episode? Come and follow me over on Instagram at wellsome underscore Gemily. Say hi and share what you've taken away from this episode with me. Now, is there a bestie, sister, or a friend who you know who might be fed up, frustrated, and confused with their cycles? Are they ready to join you in awakening their cyclical essence too? Well, take a screenshot of this podcast episode, share it on your socials, email it, text it, or any way you need to get it to them. So together, we can all live in flow, harmony, and balance with our cycles. Now, until next time, beautiful, get connected, listen to your body, and remember, body confidence all begins with living in tune with your menstrual cycle.